Thank you all for being here. And uh, I always like to start with a personal note uh, that I am from Sudan. And uh, I think being from Sudan is particularly relevant to the topic because I think, unfortunately, the confusion on these issues uh, in our own sort of country, I hear several Sudanese in the room, and I don't think that you would have been here had it not been for that confusion that uh, have cost Sudan dearly in human life and material well-being and extreme destabilization of the country, ultimately breaking up the country into two, uh, which is still in process. But the point is that the issues that uh, I'm highlighting here are extremely uh, personal, pertinent, and urgent. And unfortunately, I've just come back from Egypt uh, where I was for about a week. I came back last weekend, and I still see extreme reticence in, in, in Muslims discussing these questions, uh, despite the urgency of, uh, for those who follow events and the, the sectarian violence and serious problems that are, are happening uh, because of, of related questions, as it were. You will see that I have circulated just a, a couple of pages of the Egyptian sort of the high Supreme Military Command's constitutional decree, uh, which, uh, which, to which I will be referring while I make my remarks in terms of the, the sort of confusion and the incoherence that you find. But let me start, uh, Ferris, with a question about language. Uh, the problem is that, of course, not only that language is not only my native uh, language, which is obvious, but that any language, even among native speakers, is always likely to lead to misunderstanding because there is always an element of interpretation and translation that we tend to translate what we hear in terms of experiences that are familiar to us and ideas that are uh, sort of familiar to our lives, and out of that grows uh, sort of we, we hear what we are uh, familiar with rather than what the speaker is actually saying. So, uh, so the point is that uh, I'm just cautioning that uh, as you hear me making remarks about things that sound familiar uh, and as you translate as you always do, human beings do, into something that you, you know and interpret it in that way, sort of allow for uh, some, some space where some other possibilities can emerge about communication. The second point is about self-determination in the 21st century. Uh, in that, I think, uh, having lived in the United States for about 20 years now, um, and especially since so-called 9-11, uh, everything now 9-11 this, 9-11 that, uh, I noticed that there is a tendency to assume that Muslims are reacting to the post-9-11 environment. And as a Muslim, African Muslim from Sudan, I would like to say that, no, that is not the case. That we have been struggling with these questions for ourselves, on our own terms, for a very long time. And that there is a lot of thinking, there is a lot of struggle that is going on, not in response to Western pressure or Western expectations. With all due respect, yes, we do share the world, but that is not how our world is defined. And it is very much about how we are seeking to exercise our right to self-determination in asserting, uh, speaking for myself, in asserting an Islamic identity 
And yet, in trying to make sense of what that means in today's world with all its complexities and interdependencies and so on. So it, it is very much, as I say, uh, an exercise in self-determination. And the point is that uh, European colonialism had been so successful that it had rendered itself irrelevant. Meaning what? Meaning that, that now we live in such a globalized world, uh, so interdependent, so integrated economically, politically, culturally, that uh, no particular region can continue to exercise hegemony on the rest of the world. And that people will, will go on asserting their rights of determination on their own terms by virtue of this transformation that has happened as a result of European colonialization. <coughs> now, the, I will try to keep my remarks to about 25 minutes from now so that we can have at least half an hour of discussion, which I think is the most useful part of the conversation anyway, because I will be responding to what is on your mind. I would like to suggest that we are dealing here with, uh, in terms of the title of this talk, two sets of ideas, Islam and Sharia on the one hand, and state and constitutionalism on the other. And this is not to say that these are mutually exclusive ideas, but in fact, it is the exact opposite, that because of the interconnectedness for a Muslim of Islam and Sharia in relation to constitutionalism and the state and anything else. Because for me, and again, it is, it is to be clear on the point, being Muslim is about, or what, what sort of being Muslim is an anchor of my identity, of my self-understanding. And it is out of that that I, that I exercise all types of reflections, struggles, and relationships. It is not something that it is an afterthought or something that is external to what I do or what I, how I feel about issues. Now, <clears throat> I'm sure that many of you are curious about the term Sharia. And, and part of the problem that Muslims have with this term is very much what you may be having with it, which is that it is a very ambiguous and very contested and context, uh, sort of difficult term uh, to, to define or to understand more precisely. <coughs> but before I do that, before I come to an understanding or at least some working definition of what I mean by Sharia, uh, we have to note, I think, on, on the Islam and Sharia side of the set of ideas we are discussing, um, I would note globalization, and I would note sort of intensified sort of uh, communication, solidarity building, interdependencies. So the, the economic and social dimensions of globalization and interdependence in that, that sort of uh, these factors in global context of where Muslims live, and Muslims live all over the world, it is the second largest religion in the world, Often, I think that that point needs to be made, although it should be obvious enough, that one in every four persons in the, in the global population is a Muslim. One in four. <coughs> that there are more than 40 countries where Muslims are the predominant majority of the population. So a quarter of the membership of the United Nations are, in fact, Muslim-majority countries. 
and that the vast majority of Muslim country, majority countries never feature in our understanding of Islam because often we tend to think of the Middle East and particular countries within that region as definitive of Islam and Muslims. So this is one point I would like to, to, to try to clarify that the vast majority of Muslims actually live outside the Middle East. There are more Muslims in Sub-Saharan Africa than there are Muslims in the Middle East. And, and there are a number of Muslim majority countries which I will mention in, uh, later on which are quite different culturally, politically, uh, ideologically than what we tend to associate with Islam and Muslims. <coughs> but the point about globalization and, 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 and what comes with it is what I call diffusion of religious authority. Sometimes things happen uh, that tend to have unintended consequences. Uh, a point that we know, if you like, we can pick it up in discussion is that one of the features of Islamism, one of the consequences, that is political, political Islam or active uh, sort of political ideology, is that it had contested traditional religious authority. So that now you get this middle class educated, often uh, sort of technological types of Muslim activists who are contesting the authority and the monopoly of traditional ulama, traditional Muslim scholars, to define Islam. So that is an outcome of what we call political Islam or Islamism. But it has a very beneficial uh, sort of outcome for Muslim discourse at large. Because now that we have diffused uh, the nature of religious authority beyond traditional institutions, now the vast majority of Muslims can in fact engage in these contestations of what Sharia means in the new environment with social media, with communication, with all possibilities of understanding <coughs> that can go beyond uh, the traditional circles, as it were. On the state and, and the constitution side of, of my remarks, I would like to note, I already mentioned uh, colonialism. Uh, which is something that we often need to remind ourselves on, uh, with, uh, especially in Amer American audiences. Uh, it's, it, does, it seems to me that even in academic circles, there is little awareness of the impact of colonialism on Muslim-majority countries' populations throughout Africa and Asia. And it has been tremendously uh, sort of profound and, and destabilizing and transformative. But my focus is not on that and not even on the post-colonial. Because as, as some of you I'm sure are aware, there is a whole field of post-colonial studies, which to me still remains defined by colonialism. Because it is, it is the post-colonial. <coughs> so what I'm reaching for here is a, a, an exercise in self-determination that is no longer defined by the colonial or the post-colonial. Um, I, mean, I take the, the, the notion of colonialism as a state of mind, just like New York. So uh, in, in that sense that we can remain colonized. So it is a state of mind of the colonized and the colonizer. And it is out of getting out of that state of mind that is true decolonization. It's almost like sort of uh, exercising something out of your consciousness, your awareness, and your, your sense of being. So it, it is 
Muslims' assertions of constitutionalism, of human rights values, for themselves on their own terms, regardless of colonialism. As if colonialism never happened. And how to do that is to reach out into our sort of historical experiences, our traditional uh, cultural values, and to reaffirm them, but on today's terms and context, not in the pre-colonial or the pre-modern, as it were. <coughs> uh, when we come to that, uh, because uh, the, the reason I mention this is that when we talk about colonial or sort of, sorry, excuse me, about uh, constitutionalism or the constitution, we are trying to come to an understanding of constitutionalism that is indigenous and legitimate in local cultures while still fulfilling some aspects of a universalist view of what constitutionalism is supposed to be. <coughs> I'm sure that some of you are familiar with the debate about universality and relativity, cultural and moral, and so on. And the point here I'm saying is that there is no given universals of anything. That universality is always constructed through discourse. And that discourse is based on experiences of the phenomena. So if you think of constitutionalism, it is not that American constitutionalism defined constitutionalism for everybody else but that it is an aspect of the experience that other people come to understand, to appreciate, to experience, but not in terms of its American history, but in terms of their own histories. So it is a notion of constitutionalism. So when I say constitution, constitutionalism, particular sets of ideas, entitlements, claims, fundamental rights, uh, structures of governance come to mind. But when they do, and again here I recall my remark about language, when they do, it is not that I'm claiming an American version, but I'm claiming a universalized uh, conception that emerges out of competing and uh, differing experiences of the phenomenon or, or the concept of the term. <coughs> now, uh, moving on to be more concrete uh, about Sharia. The term Sharia does not, uh, is not mentioned in the Quran in the sense that we use it today. Uh, there are three uh, verses in which the term Sharia is mentioned, but completely different meaning from what we take it now to be. And in fact, when you look at Muslim early history, you will not find the term in any of the major sciences of Islamic jurisprudence and philosophy and, and discourse for the first three centuries of Islam. So the term Sharia was coined in the third century and started to have a meaning which over time evolved until it came to mean what, what we understand it to mean today. <coughs> so it is it's remarkable that a concept that is so identified with Islam would have been totally alien to Muslims of the first generation, of the second generation, of the third generation, of almost like six or seven generations. So if you said Sharia to a Muslim of the eighth century, of the ninth century, he wouldn't know what you are talking about. And now it has come to be so self-evident as if Islam is Sharia and Sharia is Islam. And my point is that they are not. Sharia is always a human contextual understanding of Islam. 
It is never Islam as such. In fact, there is no way for Islam as such to be comprehensible. So the point here is that human experience and human comprehension is the only means by which we can access any meaning of religion. Ironically, for, for the religions which claim divine origin like Islam and Christianity and Judaism, uh, there is a paradox in that it ceases to be divine by the very act of its coming, becoming relevant to human experience. That is, say for example, as a Muslim, I believe the Quran to be divinely revealed. What does that mean? Because as soon as I read the text, it's no longer divine. Because it is part of my comprehension, it's my ability to understand it, is already preempting or, or undermining any notion of divinity. It is no longer purely divine, whatever that may have meant. Uh, once it enters my comprehension, it becomes human. It becomes a product of the human condition in context, in history, in place and time. So that, that is how sort of uh, you might think radical, but I think it's in fact self-evident notion that any comprehension of religion is a human comprehension and therefore will change with human context and understanding. It is shaped by human experience and understanding and it will change by human context and understanding. <coughs> uh, so there is no fixed meaning of Sharia that can be shared by Muslims intergenerationally. Because every generation will have to understand it, even if you, if you are not aware of the fact. But in fact, that our experience and understanding of Sharia is shaped by our historical experiences, by our location, by our conditions. And as such, it will not be, it, we, we tend to think of as if when we say Sharia today and we say it, or having said it or referring to something that happened in the 11th century, it is the same concept. And by, def by definition, I'm suggesting it cannot be. <clears throat> but still, because of that sort of uh, uh, highly developed co conceptual and methodological nature of the science of interpreting Sharia, what is known as Ursul al-Fiqh, that the foundations of Islamic jurisprudence or the methodologies of Islamic jurisprudence. Because of the belief that that methodology stayed stagnant, we seem to, have to be trapped in understanding of the Sharia that are, is, are no longer relevant to our human experience. And, and that is where one place where we have to start to think about transforming our understanding of Sharia to be consistent with our lived experience of today without being constrained by historically formulated methodologies or outcomes. <clears throat> because if you stay within the traditional methodology and, 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 and sort of outcomes, uh, questions about, about the status of women, religious minorities, questions of freedom of religion, are very profoundly problematic aspects of Sharia as historically understood. So much so that they are totally inconsistent with any possibility of constitutionalism. That to speak of Sharia and constitutional governance at the same time can only be co coherent if you mean a sense of Sharia other than what Muslims accept to be Sharia today. Uh, and I will, maybe that point will become clearer when I give 
concrete examples from the recent Egyptian experience. So the, the traditional interpretations contained or constrained by traditional methodologies could not possibly be understood to be consistent with constitutional governance. If you cannot say Sharia, unless you mean something different than what people take it to mean, you cannot say Sharia as historically understood and constitutionalism in the same sentence and be coherent. <clears throat> so finally, uh, in this phase of my remarks, uh, that we have to find a way of transforming our understanding of Sharia. And it's quite simple and easy, really. Uh, because this is the point that, the point is that uh, there is no enacting authority or enacting moment for any principle of Sharia. That is, uh, I keep saying this term, every time I say Sharia, I think human interpretation of Islam. But it's just a longer term, so say Sharia. Whatever any principle may have come to be accepted as part of Sharia, it came to be accepted intergenerationally through consensus and never through enactment, that there is no authority that can declare a principle of Sharia out of sort of the sources in the abstract. So it is only when Muslims intergenerationally accept a particular understanding that that understanding becomes authoritative to them as their understanding of Sharia. In other words, religious authority is in the eyes of the beholder. That it is only, it is I who confers authority on the understanding of Sharia, not that it has authority independent of my judgment and experience. And should I just be aware of that, then I am already in control of the process by which Sharia was produced in the first time, or in sort of the first time round. Meaning that it is, it, is, it is that sense of original authorship in the believer, not in an autonomous text or an independent text that gives meaning to Sharia. And understanding that, therefore, would, would mean that I'm not constrained by anybody else's understanding of it. It is because of that I argue that we have to have secular states. Now, this might sound like a, a jump. Wow, where did this come from? The point is that the state is a political institution. It's incapable of having a religion. It is incapable of having a religion. So whenever we ascribe a religion to a state, what we mean is it is a state that is used by the political elite who control it to enforce their view of religion. Because every view of religion is a human view of religion. There is no divine understanding that is independent of human experience. And when we think that what we mean by an Islamic state is a state in which some people control it to impose their view of what Islam means, we understand how serious it is to concede that authority to any state. It is for that that I argue that the state must be neutral regarding religious doctrine. 
It cannot claim to promote or to oppose any view of religion or lack of religion for that matter. The state is a political institution that we all share and should remain outside our religious convictions and experiences, which are valid only when we do it outside the framework of the state. Uh, in the book, it's called Islam and the Secular State, the opening sentence of the first chapter, uh, if I remember correctly, is because I've read it so many times, I should remember that uh, I need the state to be secular so that I can be a Muslim by conviction and choice, which is the only way to be a Muslim. That is, there is no possibility of being a Muslim except by conviction and choice. Any Muslim would concede that. But the implication is that the state must have nothing to do with what it is to be a Muslim or to try to promote a particular understanding of it. Because by definition, that denies me the freedom to choose. And the freedom to choose is integral to the possibility of belief. Uh, but differently, I say that the possibility of belief logically requires the possibility of disbelief. If I am unable to believe, I cannot believe either. Just think about it. There have to be the possibility of not believing for belief to be meaningful and to have any religious relevance and significance. That's why the state must be and remain secular. My claim goes further, not to complicate things, but the point is that to say that there is no such thing as an Islamic state, never has been never can be. The state was always a political institution and will remain as such. It may not be secular enough, but it is never religious. Now, against this background, I bring you to look at the current uh, recent experience of some Muslim-majority countries. Uh, I, interestingly, when Muslim started sort of in the 18th, 19th century, coming to terms with this Westphalian model of the state, the nation states, and, 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 and trying to develop constitutional documents. The first constitution was, in fact, the Tunisian constitution of 1861. And that constitution made no reference to Islam or Sharia or anything like that. There were several Egyptian constitutional documents. Uh, in the, one was the 1866, the Advisory Council of Representatives, 1882 uh, parliament uh, sort of decree. And again, there was no mention of Islam or Sharia in the constitutional document. The first mention ever to Islam in a constitutional document in Muslim majority situations was the constitution of Egypt of 1923. That was the first time that they said Islam is the religion of the state. And it's amazing, where did that come from? I mean, if people never had the, the need to say that before, and now they had it, I'm sure that social scientists, historians can debate the point. But you will not find any reference to it before the Egyptian constitution of 1923. Then the first mention of Sharia in the constitution was the Syrian constitution of 1950, which says that Islamic fiqh, meaning jurisprudence, is the main source of legislation. But exceptional as those documents were, now they, are, they have become the dominant norm. In the vast majority of situations, 
at least um, one of the two is mentioned. Either Islam is the religion of the state, or the state is an Islamic state, or Sharia is the primary source, or a source of legislation. And my point about incoherence, which I will take you now through the, the handout that you have, is to see the inherent contradiction in the claim itself. When you see uh, Article 1, of, this is the constitutional decree that was issued by the Egyptian uh, the Supreme Military Council of Egypt, uh, which is the current constitutional sort of structure for Egypt in the transition uh, into more democratic rules. Uh, in Article 2, uh, Article 1 to start with, the Arab Republic of Egypt is a democratic state based on citizenship. The Egyptian people are part of the Arab nation and work for the realization of its comprehensive unity. Of course, the last part is incoherent anyway, but, uh, but, but in any case, they seem to have these rituals. I mean, they have to say this, although it's totally meaningless and nobody really takes it seriously, but the thing about Arab unity and that. But, but the point is that it says it's a democratic state based on citizenship. It cannot be a democratic state based on citizenship if you take the second article seriously. Islam is a religion of the state, and the Arabic language uh, is, is the official language. Principles of Islamic law, Sharia, are the principal source of legislation. So if Islam is a religion of the state, then the state is no longer based on citizenship is based on religious affiliation. A Coptic Christian uh, Egyptian cannot be an equal citizen if Islam is the religion of the state. And also, if Sharia is the princi principal source of legislation, there is a structural discrimination that is in completely structured, it is inbuilt in the methodology and in the outcomes of every aspect. Often you find people debating, can the head of the state be a Christian or a non-Muslim? Actually, that is the least significant point. The point is that there is systematic discrimination against women and against non-Muslims throughout the structure of Sharia in every aspect. Daily events, life experiences, criminal justice, contracts, any field of law, any field of practice, you will see, because it was a systematic way of thinking that this historical understanding of Sharia was not arbitrary. It was very systematic, and it was coherent, and it was methodological. In fact, if you study the field, Muslim lawyers of that time were superb lawyers. And they worked out things in very precise consequence and implications. So it is, it is a total contradiction to say that it is based on citizenship and to say that Islam is the religion of the state. And if you look at other aspects of, the, of this document, and you can see throughout, I mean that, that the, if you look, for example, at Article 7, which I think you have it. Again, these rights, uh, not actually, it shouldn't be Article 7 as such, but it is more, let, let me see, because I better keep, time is running out already. 
yes, Article 3, in fact, Article 3. Sovereignty is for the people alone, and they are the source of authority. So how can you have popular sovereignty when Islam is a religion of the state? And what does it mean? I mean, what I, that's, that's what I mean by, by incoherence. You cannot have the two. You can either have Islam as a religion of the state and Sharia as the source of legislation, or you can have sovereignty of the people, but you cannot have the two. Because if Sharia is the source of legislation, then it is not popular sovereignty that is the source of authority. And so on. I mean, you can look at uh, Article 7, actually, according to my Arabic text. That's why I'm... Um, um, uh, it should be about equality before the law. Where is that? Uh, six. Uh, funny, in the Arabic text, it is... Uh, Seven, but in any case, law applies equally to all citizens. Now that is not a Sharia principle. There is no equality among all people under Sharia. Sharia acknowledges rights of people by membership of groups. So if you are a Muslim male, you have rights. If you are a Muslim woman, you have rights. If you have a, a, a people of the book, a Christian or a Jew, you have rights. If you are a non-believer, you don't have rights. You don't have even personhood. And so, so it, it is not a matter of equality before the law. So why, why bring Sharia in to claim that it is a source of legislation, uh, define the state as being, having Islam as a religion of the state, and, exp and then continue to articulate aspects of constitutionalism that are completely inconsistent with that idea? That is the notion of incoherence, I mean. Now, uh, uh, George and I actually we have discussed and agreed on this time and this talk several months ago, before the Arab Spring, as they call it now. But conveniently, uh, we have the Arab Spring. Uh, we have Tunisia, we have, which has the best chance, actually, uh, in making it well. Egypt may be second uh, in the sense of how the transition can be successful. Libya struggling, Yemen struggling. But it is remarkable throughout the region People are out risking life and livelihood, demanding democratic governance, constitutional rights, self-determination, uh, economic justice, and so on. And people are doing this without reference to Islam, but with these documents. You know, Article 2 was not put for the referendum that took place in Egypt a few months, a few weeks ago. It was not put to the referendum that, that it was kept out and introduced by the military council as part of this constitutional decree after the referendum, as if it is, you can either think that it was so uh, sort of taken for granted that they didn't think that it is worthy of being put on, on, to, on the pallet for, for the referendum, or that it was so that it might be undermined if we put it uh, in the referendum. But in any case, it's interesting that in all the constitutional documents that Islam came to be the religion of the state or the state came to be Islamic, they were undemocratically made constitutions. That they were not constitutions that were publicly debated and were not constitutions that were popularly voted upon. They were all written by elites in, behind closed doors and announced top down 
on people to be their constitutions of the day and forward, going forward. So the question, for, therefore, I'm asking is, is it now time to revisit these questions? Will we be able to open the discourse to say that well, let us stop this fundamental incoherence? Because it is not only incoherence that maybe annoys people like myself who study things and like them to be consistent and logical, but it is a very deadly incoherence. People are dying in the streets of Cairo and Alexandria and Luxor over these questions, over this confusion. Hundreds of thousands of people have died in Sudan because of this confusion. And how many lives does it have to take? And I don't think that we will ever come to the post-colonial truly in the, the point that I was saying about no longer be colonized intellectually or politically or in another way without taking these challenges for ourselves as Muslims. So I will leave this as my introduction and open for your comments and questions. Okay, I see one, two, three, four. Uh, one thought about uh, the uh, relevance or the value of viewing the state as a secular institution or something that's better secular, so it can maintain a sort of mutual stance about differences in the society. You talked about gender differences and differences between Muslims and, and Jews and Christians, but um, it, it, there, there are at least some major countries in the region that have internal religious diversity among their Muslims, and they're doing a bad job of accommodating that, and especially historically, they, they, they treated the dissident Muslims even worse than I mean, that was really bad. I think if you were a Christian, at least you could have a place. But if you were an Alevi in Turkey or something like that, you, you weren't supposed to have a place. Uh, I, was, I was wondering if you could uh, maybe make some comments about how the, understanding the state as a, ideally you know, sort of like a secular machine to just provide services for this Muslim-majority country. Uh, how, many, how many countries in the region would, would this make a positive difference for I think throughout I mean every state will benefit from this because as soon as you uh, make any claim about the Islam being the religion of the state then the question becomes which Islam whose Islam who decides what Islam is for it to be the religion of the state uh, so the point is that by saying make Islam irrelevant to citizenship. It has nothing to do with my citizenship. My citizenship enables me to be a Muslim by conviction and choice, but it is not a condition of my citizenship or lack of religion or lack of religion. So in other words, as soon as you make religion the focus, then the question it has to be the correct religion, the authentic religion, which happens to be the religion, of course, which of the ruling elites. Because they are the ones who decide what Islam is. So if you are an Ahmadi in Pakistan, you are not a Muslim constitutionally. Can you imagine uh, Zulfar Ali Bhutu, the father of Banazir Bhutu, uh, a liberal, secular, intellectual, amending the constitution of Pakistan so that constitutionally it becomes impossible for Ahmadis to claim to be Muslims. So if you choose to self-define as a Muslim, 
The Constitution of Pakistan tells you, no, you can't do that. You can't even call Adam for prayer. You can't call your house of prayer a mosque. You can't call yourself a Muslim. So, that, so as soon as you bring Islam into, or any religion for that matter, into the nature of the state, then you are really destroying, you are corrupting the state and corrupting the religion with it. So I think every single country, Saudi Arabia has a significant Shia minority, uh, but the Shia minority of Saudi Arabia are required to live according to a doctrine they deem to be a heresy, which is the Wahhabi doctrine. And across the Persian or Arab uh, Gulf, as, as you like to call it, Arab or Persian, uh, then you get Iran, where Sunni Muslims are required to live by a doctrine that they do not accept, which is the Shia 12 doctrine. So as soon as you, you, give the, you implicate the state into this, you are undermining the possibility of being a Muslim in any sense, as well as a believer in any sense or lack of, of being human in any sense. educated Muslims have been debating uh, the usul al-fiqh and also the human interpretation of Islam with each other for centuries. Almost a thousand years ago, uh, Al-Ghazali has written you the same topic as you using incoherent stuff. But it was in a, about the knowledge and arts or uh, the others that were rationalists at that time. So that's, that's a fact, historically. You mentioned that the Syrian, Syrian constitution was the, one of the constitutions that early mentioned that My remarks were to do with the first constitution that mentioned Islam as a religion of the state was the Egyptian constitution of 1973 says the point I was making is not precisely which constitution at what date, but that it is a recent phenomenon. Uh, so the, the, the fact that people started doing this recently in the 20th century for the first time is the point I was making. Not, not that, so it is not inherent to being Muslim that you feel that way and think that way ever, forever. In fact, the first codification of Sharia ideas um, or principles, of course, the Ottoman experience since 19, 1839, with the Majalla in the 1960s and 1860s and 70s. But the first sort of enactment of Sharia as a statute with the Ottoman family law of 1917 did something very curious, which is, which is the, the, the possibility of, of codifying Sharia is again is a contradiction. Because you can, you can, there are so many competing views that whenever you codify, you are going to be selective. And what you choose to codify will mean that those that are outside your codification 
are no longer accessible to people who believe in them to live by them. But the Ottoman Act, the Family Act, Family Statute of 1917, or Family Law, uh, makes for the first time, introducing non-Hanafi principles into the code because there was a problem with the Hanafi principle over divorce. So then the, the, the lawmaker, the legislature, has the freedom to choose among competing schools to pick and choose which are elements to enact as a statute. And by doing so, it would have been making a principle that would not be acceptable to any of the schools which are cited in support of that principle. You know, the, the, this notion of, uh, of, of talfiq, patching up, that's what, that's what it's called. It's called patching up, talfiq. And it is a very, very methodologically dishonest and arbitrary process because Sharia cannot be codified. And it was not intended to be codified at any time by the scholars who developed it in the first place. So the point is that these are, are post-colonial phenomena in that notions of the state and notions of state law are European that came to be adopted and imposed on pre-colonial pre notions of Sharia to create a very curious mix. One and two. I'll take them together and then I will respond on this side. Thank you very much. The, uh, the, the model that you suggested the stability of Islam in the absence of Sharia. I think Sub-Saharan Africa, West Africa actually provides excellent example. One can look at Mali, Senegal, all the rest. That are secular states, and Islam has continued to grow, and the integrity of Islam has actually remained without the influence of the state. Nigeria, Northern Nigeria, which attempted to use the Sharia, actually produced chaos. Now, my question is, <coughs> is there any historical reason why the Arab world finds it necessary to, to, to use is, uh, Sharia or Islam as a religion to represent the framework of the, of the state and to guide state behavior. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, I was wondering if you're familiar um, with the book, The Myth of an Islamic State. Yes. Uh, with the Indonesian work. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, on the first point, I think you are right that in sub-Saharan Africa, in fact, I had a list here of 10 at least countries which are constitutionally secular, although predominantly Muslim-majority countries. Burkina Faso, Mali, uh, Senegal, the Gambia, Guinea, all of these countries. Uh, and, and the point for me is that it, it is true that Middle Eastern Islam to be, to be lagging behind, in the, or rather Middle Eastern discourse to be lagging behind other regions. But the problem is that other regions are not immune from influence from the Middle East. And even West Africa that you mentioned, um, there is a growing Wahhabi influence even in Senegal. And that is undermining. And the point therefore is that it is not enough that the country is defined constitutionally as secular state unless you have a discourse that backs that up so that you can defend the principle. Because otherwise, so it, it could be the French colonial influence that enabled those countries to come out openly and clearly to say that they are, they are secular states. But which is fine. In fact, I often give the examples of those states as examples of predominantly Muslim-majority countries who are fine with the notion of a secular state. But my worry is, can we sustain that? 
without building a discourse that actually challenges the core idea of an Islamic State. Not that we just happen to have, uh, at this point, a secular state in Senegal, but that uh, the whole question about family law and whether you can keep it in the civil code or you have to bring up, as in Senegal, a discourse is emerging, that you have to bring Islamic principles. So the point is, therefore, is to say that all law is secular and civil. It is never religious. And, and, and that the state is, uh, is, is at least uh, nominally secular, if not uh, secular enough, but it is never religious. But this has to come from an Islamic discourse, not just simply as constitutional provisions which are not. And, and that is the experience of Turkey, where you had had a very militant laicite type of secularism that was not backed up by public discourse that sustained and, 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 and made it acceptable to the public at large. Now, the, the Indonesian case of the, the, the myth of an Islamic state uh, is a very welcome type of discourse. But I worry that, again, if uh, the question is, how can you bring this discourse to a popular level? I think our friend here made the reference to an elite discourse versus a popular discourse. Uh, as, as some of you are aware, I think probably that uh, Hezbo Tahrir is gaining ground in the most bizarre and, and really odd phenomena, uh, totally ahistorical notion of uh, what Hizb tahrir is talking about, is gaining uh, sort of influence in, 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 in Indonesia. It's very alarming. And, and therefore, the question is, maybe Ahmadiyya and Ahtud al-Ulama either have to transform or are no longer capable of leading a sort of a, a moderate, modernist, uh, understanding of Islam in the country, or new organizations have to emerge. But the point is that in any part of the region, look at Malaysia, uh, which was a very sensible place until recently, uh, and now suddenly you have all sorts of things about uh, apostasy and about family law issues that is destroying the country. So the question for me is every place where you have the discourse established, how to create sort of to immunize, almost like taking a shot against fundamentalism. That you don't do by going to a clinic, but you do by creating a public discourse that is Islamic particularly, that, that it uses Islamic concepts, history, methodologies to challenge this myth. Yes. Yes. I think by making the point that it is a necessary condition of social life altogether. Social life will not be possible 
if each of us want to have her or his own way, uh, as you put it in terms of the, 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 the particular and subordinating the particular for the general, that it is not only about religious belief. It could be about ideological belief. It could be about political beliefs. I mean, some of us who have to live through a, a democratic administration or Republican administration are doing this too who happen to be living in Ohio under a, a, a Republican governor, are doing that too. The point is that, uh, right? <laughs> the point is that you have to, uh, I mean, the, for the possibility of your view to have any relevance to public policy, you have to accept the rules of the game that would allow other points of view to prevail over yours, so long as you have your space to contest and be able to come back and have your view prevail. Therefore, the view that can come in and out like that cannot be a religious view. It has to be what I call a civic view. So, so the, the notion of civic discourse is the requirement that you should try to rush, uh, justify your policy choices with reference to a discourse that is not a religious discourse. You may have a religious motivation for presenting the policy, but your justification of it must be civic that is referencing a shared sense of reason and reasoning that people can share, accept, or reject without religious uh, sort of implications, as it were. So because religion is non-negotiable, so if you, do, if you want to keep your religion non-negotiable, don't put it in the public space. Uh, don't try to use it to support public policy, because then others will do the same to you, and you will lose yours. So, so it is that self-interest in, in the very possibility, if you want to have you know, I, th I think for Americans it's obvious, it should be obvious, but of course you have to repeat this every generation as was it uh, one of your guys said that, I mean that uh, that you have to renew this commitment every generation. That, that, that the possibility of being religious requires, uh, when you said uh, given realities of pluralism, there is always pluralism, there is never uniformity, there is never sort of monolithic sort of anything. Every society is diverse by, by definition. No two people are the same anyway. So therefore, there we need to focus on conditions that enable you, and that's why the subtitle of the book I mentioned earlier is negotiating the future of Sharia. That whatever Sharia, whatever Sharia, whatever future Sharia can have has to be negotiated. It cannot be declared as a religious mandate. There was one and two and three, and then I think that would be it. Oh, yes, one and two and three. I'm wondering what your assessment might be of the campaign of the organization of the Islamic Conference at the UN to get resolutions passed against the defamation of religion. Um, some of what you were saying kind of made me think uh, about a particular uh, theory on this. You mentioned the Egyptian Constitution 1923 saying <coughs> that the state is Islamic. I mean, at that point, the Egyptians were trying to get out from under Britain. And that might have been a code word for saying we don't like the British. Uh, it might have had nothing to do with religion in particular. And I think you see that at the UN now, in particular with the disparagement of Islam in the mm -hmm. period, uh, that, that uh, uh, there's an insistence on, on, uh, on saying we have to you know, protect our religion from being disparaged. Uh, yes, but it has been such a long time now. I mean, colonialism, that's why I started with talking about colonialism. That so long as we continue to be in the post-colonial, we seem to be continuing to react to the colonial. And what I'm saying is that it is time now to grow out of this. To say that, I mean, because 
so long as we remain in the post-colonial, emotionally, intellectually, uh, politically, then we are still defined by it. But, but okay, 23, they were trying to get the British, what are they do? why are they doing it now in 2011? Repeating the same formula of 70 years ago. At a time when Egyptians were killing other Egyptians in the streets of their towns. Uh, to heighten sort of this religious awareness and the discrimination that is in, in, in a situation where it is undermining the, even the basic public, uh, public order of the country. So, so it is, uh, and I, I don't accept that, I know about what you mean about the, the formation of religion, and it is really, I mean, the, the Organization of Islamic States never managed to come up with significant issues really. I mean, they, they take on very marginal issues and make such a big deal of it, Whereas real injustice, real discrimination, real underdevelopment and poverty are never touched. Who are these 57, 56 countries would call themselves the Organization of Islamic Conference? What do they do the rest of the time? We hear about them every five, ten years coming up with something like this. The arrogance of thinking that you can defend Islam. I mean that Islam needs to be defended. Allah Akbar, God is great. Let's defend Islam. Defend Islam by being good Muslims and doing justice, not by protesting, uh, sort of, uh, creating problematic notions like collective sort of uh, notions of. But the way that notion will be used to suppress even further religious minorities in Muslim countries, because already in Pakistan we have people being prosecuted for for blasphemy, uh, and imagine then anything that you can say can be, and then they can cite uh, human rights council. Uh, sort of resolution, uh, defending, uh, sort of promoting the freedom of um, protection of religion to persecute religious minorities and political and religious dissidents, your point, uh, on the, on the least, least protest, uh, pretext. So it, it is a totally red herring that has really no significance value. Remember who brought, brought it up? Pakistan, 1999 and who promoted it even in the, in, the, in the Human Rights Council. So it is a very counterproductive, it is a regressive move, and I'm glad it is not uh, still viable. Yes, one and two.
But we know that there are divine people. And by this, if we say that there is no divine, I think we deny the, uh, our profession as human beings. Because we know that God uh, filters his uh, divine discernment through people. So I think that there are divine people. We, we don't need, if we, if we would like to say there is no religion, I don't think this does not require us to deny I don't know what you mean by divine people. I, I completely don't understand what you mean by divine people. How do we know them? Who are they? How do they become divine and remain human? I don't understand that part. But in a, we can continue that conversation. I don't understand the second part of your, your question. That's what I'm saying. I don't understand how can a human being be divine and remain human. No, we can't go into all this. I'm, I'm just saying that I don't understand this part of your question. On the first part, the incoherence is of Islam as the religion of the state. Although Islam and Sharia can be distinguished in the sense that Sharia is always a human understanding of Islam, but there is no understanding of Islam other than a human understanding of Islam. Always, that as soon as you say the word, you are, you are bringing it into your human comprehension. You have an idea of what you mean by Islam. That is not divine. That is your human understanding of it. But the point is that it is, so at some level, at one level of analysis, you can say that it is useful to distinguish between Islam and Sharia to say that there are possibilities of understanding Islam other than what is established as Sharia. But since the language that is used in the constitutional language is to say Islam is a religion of the state, I'm saying that is incoherent because that every, whenever that term is used, as soon as you read it or write it or think of it, it is no longer divine. It has entered into your, your human experience, comprehension and experience. And that is the point why it is mentioned in the first place. So if there is something called Islam that is divine and remains divine, what value do you gain from having it in your constitution? You do it because you want to invoke the sanctity of the divine for your human politics. That's why the state called, why did the Egyptian state call its constitution uh, Islam, uh, sort of called the, to say that the Islam is the religion of the state? Because they, they want to invoke that divinity, but it is no longer divinity as soon as you use it in human language. But the first and second part, I, I don't understand what you mean by divine people. I don't know what that means. Yes.
when they assume that hijab, for instance, they assume that is a symbol of religion. And yet, as a, in, in modernity and as a secular state, or secular state, yet they can define if you can do it or not. How do you see that inconsistency within the European uh, liberal democracy? Okay. Uh, on the first point, uh, the transformation starts here and now with every single one of us. It is not something that someone has to do at some point, you know, like it is, it is not a switch that one of us will turn on or off. It is a transformation of our consciousness, each and single and every one of us right now here, to say that I for myself see this point, and I for myself as of now do not accept this idea about you know the post-colonial and this sort of my frame of reference being Europe for any reason, which goes back to the, your second point. I mean, for me, France is not a secular state. By my definition, I don't see a moral or political difference between requiring women to wear the veil or denying them the right to wear the veil. They are two sides of the same coin. So, um, and, and for me, the definition of a secular state is one that is neutral regarding religious doctrine. So to the extent that French state is not neutral, neither is the Turkish state, to that extent it is not a secular state by my definition. But the, still the point for me is, is that the, my focus is not to be on what the Europeans are doing, that is their problem. My focus is on what, what we, Muslims, uh, African or Asian or any other part of the world are doing on our issues. And I, I worry about the tendency to say that because the Europeans are doing it, it's okay for us to do it. You know, that is part of the post-colonial state of mind. Okay, because, uh -huh. I, I, I have one, I, I would like you to, I mean, uh, you said that there uh, was never, uh, there's never been an Islamic state. Mm -hmm. So what about the state which existed under the leadership of Prophet Muhammad, or the state uh, at the time of the uh, Khulafa Rashidin, of the right-guided caliphs? Mm -hmm. uh, was it uh, an Islamic state or not? Because we know that those who dream of re-establishing uh, an Islamic state, they recur to <coughs> historical <coughs> stage. And uh, the other point I would like you make, if, you, if you'd like to talk a little bit more about the universality of human rights. I mean, um, can we say that human rights are, there is something which is universal to be acknowledged, um, to be acknowledged by every society, uh, somehow uh, dealing with basic human rights, which are universal for everybody. Mm. Okay, on, on, the, on the first point, there was never an Islamic state, including Medina. The Prophet's state, if you can call it a state, was not an Islamic state, because for the Muslims, he was the Prophet. For the Jews and Christians, he was not uh, a, a Prophet, or, or they did not accept him as a, as, as a religious leader anyway. So, unless you can have a second prophet, there is, so the point, I, I put it this way, I know provocatively. I say that the prophet's experience in Medina is too exceptional to be relevant. 
because he was a prophet. Uh, and there is no other prophet according to Muslim belief, therefore we cannot have it again. Uh, uh, and, but even if you look at it closely, you will see that for the believers he was a prophet, so he was not a political leader. Because the point is that you cannot have a religious state. Why? Because religious truth is not a matter of majority rule. It is, it is a matter of, uh, it is a question of truth. And truth can be with a single person again, it's the multitude of, of everybody else. Everybody else could be wrong and I could be religiously right. Or, or the opposite, of course, which is more likely. But the point is that the nature of religious truth does not permit its being sort of implicated in governance and the state, and matters of the state. Since Abu Bakr, it was obviously a very political state very, from the very beginning because even when you have major companions disagree with the Prophet with Abu Bakr about uh, the so-called uh, the war of the apostasy uh, in which some Muslims said that we are Muslims but we refuse to pay zakat to the state and Abu Bakr said I'm going to fight to subdue them and Ali and Umar and Osman said no. Who, which of the two had the religious truth? We don't know. But we know who had the political truth or the political validity, which is Abu Bakr because he was the caliph and he knew that if he allowed these guys to rebel by refusing to pay tax, as it were, to the state, the whole state would collapse. So it was a political state. He made a political decision. In my view, it was a right political decision, but it was not a religious decision. Uh, on the question of universality, I know time is short, but let me, you know, I, I talk about three things. Concept, content, context. Think of this as context. The point is that <laughs> universality is a concept. The idea that we can have rights which are due to every human person just for being human. It's very appealing. Everybody likes this. As soon as you come, what is the content? What are these rights? You will get disagreement. And when you come to the context in which the concept is reduced into content or defined into content, you get also a disagreement. For me, the universality of the concept can be transformed into a universality of the content through discourse and consensus. It is not that you can proclaim it. Universality is not something that you proclaim out of natural law or out of philosophical premise, Kant or whoever, it is that for anybody subscribing to the notion of the universality of these rights, for that person, he or she can have their own foundations and their own discourse to support their claim. Universal rights are the rights which I accept as such, not the rights which anybody else tells me that they are because they are universal according to some doctrine or enlightenment or this or that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much.